Sublime Podcast. This is your host, Mr. Haberdashi, a.k.a. Aeolus White, a.k.a. Who's next? Um, yeah, I, that fucking song. Go, 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 appropriation. You know, that song, um, what I'll say is, um, that is my shit, low-key. Now, I know the hip-hop Harry. Like, I know the era. I know it's cultural appropriation. Like, I would not stream it, but I'm just gonna say that seeing them kids... I mean, and there are black kids, so I can't act like there are no black kids in the, in the tea. I saw some, you know, busting it open. I'm not busting it. That's not accurate. I saw some... Dancing, getting busy, you know. Um, this is going downhill. I'll be the tequila for that one. And um, yeah, I'm drinking this episode. And I haven't drank in a while on the pod. And it's honestly been because I'm afraid to just start crying. So, especially rum. Like, if I drink a whole bunch of rum or, like, some whole bunch of bourbon or some shit, like, and all of the stuff that's going on, um, I'm likely to just start crying on the pod. And although, you know, there are people that like that, I feel like that's not what I'm serving on the pod. And to keep it real... To keep it real, this has been so difficult for me. And not even like a woe is me, me individual. I know everybody black is feeling this. And hopefully people that love, you know, that are in service to the community, the folks, I know the folks that are allies are feeling it. It's, I mean, this is a human rights thing, so I think everyone should be feeling it. But what I can say is me, like, personally, I had been going through, and I mentioned this a little last week, just amplifying my own empathy that's natural for me and going in and getting my hands dirty and breaking down a whole bunch of barriers and, you know, walls and protective personalities and shit to really insulate me from the raw, the intensity of this type of aspect of my personality. And I feel like I did the, I chose the wrong motherfucking year. I probably should have done this shit in the, you know, 2025. You know, I, this this year to be as sort of unsheathed um, is a goddamn mess. I'll just say that. Um, there are some things that I want to say that are a little dark. I'm starting with the dark because... Uh, I have some shit to say about it. So I, I want to tell my community that it's not that I am abandoning us. It's not that I am like not, it's not that I am not using my voice and using my platform and, you know, getting busy because y'all know I'm getting busy. But I cannot, every episode, talk about all the death. You know, the Rayshard Brooks story in Atlanta. And fucking Atlanta people love talking about how it's Wakanda. This, y'all have to stop giving T.I. the mic. And I said this before, I shall say it again. Y'all have to stop giving T.I. the mic. You know... Atlanta's not Wakanda. There is no Wakanda in America, right? But I'll say that there was that story. There was the 
Oluwatoyan, I might have butchered her name, apologies, story. Every week, there is a black body to mourn, unjustly, prematurely snatched from our grasp as a community. And I can't do, I can't always be talking about this. It's like, it's funny because I've been talking to some people and I'm not going to give it too much shade because I don't want to be an asshole and, you know, especially... But there are a lot of people that are talking about not knowing what to do with their voice, having to take time to figure their voice out. But then there's, there's the actual community. We don't have time to figure our voices out. If we are silent, we will be choked. Even when we speak, we will be choked and suffocated. This oh, I got to strategize, I got to figure out my voice. It's like, I think for me, I'm just, I hate that. I hate that language. That you speak, you speak that to me. I got to figure out how to talk on a fucking podcast every week. And I love the podcast. So, you know, shout out to y'all. Shout out to, you know, as a blessing. And it's, it's my passion. And it's, you know, part of my spiritual purpose. And, you know, so no, I'm not shading it. But I got to figure out how to do that. And I can't take a break. You know, or I could take a break. But there's somebody somewhere that's being healed by this. That needs it. And you don't know what people are going through. And I'm supposed to be building community. And serious about that work. So I have to show up. And I have to, I have to, I have to assume that my community will accept me. Every time I show up. If I'm showing up with glitter or like gore, frankly, I mean, that's what this, <laughs> it could be. You turn on the the podcast these days, you don't, who knows what's tea. Um, so yeah, it's not that I don't care about these stories. I care. Um, and in my, if I, if you've, you know, if I can't do it, I can try to point and uplift other podcasters or writers or folks that are doing the work that you can listen to if you're trying to hear this every week. So I'll try to do that as well. While I'm on the dark shit, Tulsa, this is a little less dark. I wanted to comment a little about the anniversary. I think it might have been the four-year anniversary of the Pulse shooting. And... Out of all the things that I um, report, like before this, before this era, that I would read in the news, well, actually, I can't even say that, because at every era, I mean, there was Eric Garner, there was Trayvon, there was, you know, there's been this, there's been this for my whole life, so I don't want to start get to lying, but... I remember when I heard about the Pulse shooting, I was in bed with my partner at the time, my then partner. And, you know, I don't know if he would identify himself as like a club person. Uh, when we were together, we went, a lot, we went out a lot. But I identified as a club person in some ways. Like, I loved the club back then oh i used to love the club and even now like when i i don't go out that often when i was pandemic so pre-pandemic i don't go out that often but when i go out oh bitch i want i want to have the full club girl experience i want to turn up i want to not get home until 8 a.m i want to get food i want to you know i want to be out there with the girls you know, I'm the one that will party with y'all and then party with the the, the 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 bartender after they close. Like, you know, I like the turn up. The after hour spot that nobody know about. You know, I like it. 
I could go out till noon. And I remember thinking about how my friend, my oldest friend, we've been friends since 2000, how he and I came into our own in these, in these environments. There was no other place where we could be, where we can acknowledge our sexualities, acknowledge everything about ourselves. And I remember walking into a club, my first, ah, wow, was that, it might have been, was that a secret? I think. But walking into my first club and finally being like, I can let my guard down. Because back then, the girls, the gay club, the gay community wasn't catty. You know, there was cattiness. But honestly, if you got in the club and you can dance and you like to dance and you were fun, that's it. You get to, you dance, that's, that's all you got to do. And thinking about how... It was a, it's a welcome place. Like I brought my best friend to the club and bringing my best friends to the club was a moment for me that I felt like I can bring people into the world out of space that I can bring my straight friends into a place where I was comfortable because I spend my whole life in places where y'all are comfortable. And, our, and I, everything that we do, what we talk, everything that we discuss is your life and your norms. So there's one, there's just one place where I can have you come with us and deal with us and learn how we do things and be safe and you be safe and it just be beautiful. And for that to be the site of that I cried I remember I cried so much. And even when I think about it now, it makes me really sad. So I just, you know, I wanted to acknowledge that it had been, I think, four years. And to keep encouraging younger queer people um, to build their own communities as well. And to, you know, to create spaces physical spaces where people, because I think now we are digital girls, but like build physical spaces where people can come, you know, blind and, you know, well, not quite blind, like, you know, what's that phrase I'm looking for? Um, I don't know the phrase, but just really like innocent and seeking and find community. So shout out to that. And the last thing is just kind of like, you know, a positive thing. You know, the, the first clip um, was from Raquel Willis. I was at the Black Trans Lives Matter rally in March on June 14th in Brooklyn. And it was beautiful. Like, I got to see one of my best friends, someone that I love, like, more than, I mean, I nothing but love in my heart um, is there. And we met up there. And uh, I just loved seeing the community around Black trans lives and prioritizing Black trans lives. And, um, you know, I'm always kind of shocked. And maybe this speaks to my own pessimism. But when I see people of different races and, you know, presentations, lifting up black trans lives because I just feel, I mean, I don't know. I guess in my experience, I don't see the community being that loving on a regular basis. <laughs> and I don't, I, my experience, and I'm not trans at all, but just as a black queer man that is not, you know, and it's wild to say this because when I look at myself, you know, I see my femininity and I love my femininity, but I don't consider myself to even be that feminine in the context. And 
And like, you know, a lot of times my femininity is she is met with like disdain in the in the community. So like I know that y'all not here for the trans girls. I think a lot of people just want the trans girls to entertain and create culture and create, you know, what's cool for them to appropriate. And I just rarely see the true advocacy and the true love so I was shocked and I saw a lot I mean it's not for me to say that it was true because you know I think actually I think trans people have a better sense of what's bullshit and what's not because I know I do when it comes to like queer help or a queer allyship and um black allyship but you know I was pleasantly surprised and it was beautiful there was one thing though no shade to my Caribbean people, but there was a Caribbean protest right down the block, and I was just hoping that there was no drama. And like in me hoping that, that just elucidated my own trauma, like how much trauma I have with my growing up where I grew up and having to navigate that on my own. You know, there was a portion of my life where I lived like in Flatbush, Flatbush, you know, like proper Flatbush, and I was go out, I was go to the club. You know, and I was young, I was underage, and I was sneak to the club, and, you know, this guy who I think left New York, but he was a pretty good uh, party promoter, he, um, well, that's, I met him back then when I was underracing into the club, and, like, I would get home super late, I was staying with my aunt at the time, and I'd get home at crazy hours, and I would have to walk home by walk. You know, from the Winthrop train station, by myself, gay as all hell, five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock, and I'd be I'd be scared, cause you never know. Um, but yeah, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I think there were the numbers were like fifteen thousand the so, and we were all in white. It was it was really touching, and we went to. Fort Green Park, which is beautiful. I, I, I was really, you know, filled by that experience. So I, I, that's the positive that I want to, you know, leave this section of the pod with. Um, oh, yeah. So there, I'm not sure where to go with this. To be honest, because there are some things I want to talk about. Like I was kind of thinking about having it be a like a personal podcast where I just got in my bag and shared some like personal stories or I wasn't sure if I wanted to do um, some like abolitionist shit. It took a while to figure out. It took a while to figure out. You didn't be who you say you are. Um, that's y'all know that song. That shit slaps. Classic. Um, yeah. Okay. I guess maybe I would go. I would try to do it all, and then cut myself off when I go over time. So, what I think, what I think, is worth discussing is like I, I want to tell a couple of personal stories about children. And I say this, I say children and not childhood for a reason. I think that, you know, as an adult, when I have a question about my own ethics, I tend to run a thought experiment that centers around kids, that centers around my children, myself as a father, as a parent, as a friend of a parent, as a godfather, as, you know, as a gay uncle, as a, like, I think of myself as a selfless steward of a youthful, impressionable mind where my words and actions must be aligned and not just that, they must present themselves in a timely fashion. Um... And I tend to run that thought experiment a lot because that's how I think about being an elder. You know, I think if I'm, if my homegirl, because one of my best friends, I'm all, well, I consider her my best friends, but um, 
I love her to pieces. And if she, I told her that if she wanted, if she had a baby, regardless of the diggers that are around, like I would be involved, you know, to and um I see it that way. Like I just see friendship and family and you know that way. And I don't and I think, you know, a little bit of me is insecure about this. Well, a lot of me is insecure about this because I take friendship very seriously. I take Everything relationship-based very seriously. I take being a brother very seriously. I take being a son very seriously. I, I take like I take all the shit that I claim because I won't claim your ass if I don't fuck with you. And that's uh, family or not. Like that's some tea, but whatever. But if I fuck with, if I claim you, I take it very seriously. And um, yeah, I think. I've always thought about raising kids with my friends and building this community with my friends. So I, I did a lot of meditation on this. Like, why do I, why do I think like this? Like, well, what are the influences that sort of, why, how did I arrive at this thought experiment? And I realized that it started from being a kid. Like, I, as, a, as a child, I thought about having children. And it's, I don't know exactly why, and a lot of people like to say, you know, that it's because I had a, you know, a, tra- a challenging childhood, but I don't think that's necessarily, yeah, I think that influenced it for sure, and I think I did dream, I did sublimate a little, like, you know, what would I do, how would I correct some of the things that I saw as injustices or whatever, or just troubles, but I, I think that part of my soul and part of my spiritual purpose is to help guide others. I've always seen that as, I even have a tattoo that like symbolizes that. I've always had that understanding of myself. And I think as a kid, I mean, I remember I used to, make lessons from my cousin, like right after VR Troopers would go off, shout out to VR Troopers, if you know, you know. Uh, VR Troopers would go off, I would like make index cards for him, and I was like four or five years old. Like I barely knew how to, like I was not like out here writing essays, like a, a nigga was using like basic, you know, making index cards for my cousin to learn right after VR Troopers would go off. And, um, I've just always kind of thought about it in this way. And I think maybe being a parent was what I saw as the highest way of, like the highest instantiation or manifestation of that calling. And when I understood the sort of science of my sexuality, I had a lot of conflict for years about this. Because this that the, the driving force behind me you know, working my way and getting to a private school and all the sort of upward mobility bullshit that has definitely had consequences and we'll get to that. Not today, that'll be an episode. You know, me accepting elitism and leaning into elitism and that whole journey came from me wanting to give my child an amazing life, my hypothetical child an amazing life. Um, And I would say in my 20s, I spent it trying to figure out, well, now that that can't be why you live your life, you need to find reasons to live your life that aren't about kids because you may never have them. Um, Or you could adopt, you know, whatever. You can have kids, but the way that I thought, at 19 was not like the way that I think now. Um, And I guess I say all that to say that that emotional, that foundation is why I think so much about kids when I have an ethical conflict. And I bring this up because when people discuss community now, I think they often leave kids out. You know, when when you think about Things like anti-blackness, elitism, homophobia, misogyny. 
ableism and you notice these things in your friends and the people that will become elders in your community. And then you think about you having kids. And if you if you think like I think, you're thinking, well, I want to be able to leave my kids at my friend house. You know, my friends, you know, I want it to be, we all, we when some shit go down, because you know, kids are trash. Shit goes down. You know, when some shit goes down, we all have the same ethics. And we all are going to adjudicate it in the same way. We might have different styles. But you would want me around your child as a black queer man. You know, you might not you might not want me to have your child, but you would want me to be an influence on your child, one of the many influences that help get your child to, you know, where like where you want your child to be. And I expect that to be reciprocated. So I feel like if you anti-black or if you have if you aren't transparent enough to you know reconcile that or to perform a reckoning or undergo a reckoning with for that or you're misogynistic or you're homophobic or this that or the next thing, how can I leave my child with you? What will you do if something anti-black? And it's not just that you're anti-black. It could be a lack of courage. It could be a whole myriad of things that will prevent you from advocating for my child in front of my child in the moment. It might be, it could be that you ignore your trauma and you don't have a good praxis to heal from your trauma. So when something is like, you know, You have a lot of triggers, a lot of triggers that render you inactive. And, you know, for whatever reasons, I don't know, but you leave my child or, you you know, to have to fend for his or her own or non-binary own. We need a non-binary, it's it's own, but I wouldn't want to comment on it, but whatever. It's own. And I don't, that's not what I, that's not what I want. And I try to be what, you know, I think childlike, you know, child me needed. I try to be something, someone that my friends can trust me with their most prized possessions. And, you know, not that your child's a possession, that's a whole other thing, but, you know, family. And, you know, I think a lot of this matters because you see it take place in activism. So, you know, I think I made a comment last episode about gentrifiers, you know, protesting. And it's not just gentrifiers and like the whole like false allyship, although that is an analysis. I think I've already given the analysis. Um, but there's other there are other ways to come to this conclusion or other ways to investigate it. There are people that don't believe they can have kids in urban communities. They can raise kids in urban communities. And I've heard this a lot from well-meaning white people that will say, I don't know how you were reading. I don't know. I can't raise kids here. I don't know how. You know, you know, you will say this or you will have kids and you will be fine with living in the hood before you have kids. And then you'll have kids. And then as soon as they're five years old, you move out because you want them to have a good access to education. And you understand that the whole taxpayer allocation to your local public school is trash. And you see these other black kids coming, going to and from this substandard school and you raise your nose at it even though you don't think you're raising your nose at it. You know, because, you know, when you see them, 
you might think that they're boisterous. You might enjoy their culture. You might like that they're playing hip hop on their loud ass phones, or you might like that they're dancing in the. You might like this joy before you have a child. Then, when you have a child, you, you start to think wait. The injustice that's that's embedded in this system, I don't want to be a part of that. And not only do I not want to be a part of that, I don't want to help. You know, because it is the case that if you stayed in the community, you would be an advocate. Your money, your, you know, your resources would help uplift the community. But no. You leave, and you leave in the name of doing what's best for your family, and you see it as justified, and, and frankly, I'm not saying it's not justified. What I am saying is that it's hypocritical, but, you know, one can be a hypocrite. And a lot of people feel like if being a hypocrite means having the best for your family, it's, it's a welcome title to, to hold. But it's like a lot of this, this happens a lot. It happens a lot where people say, and it's not just, you know, the education example. It's, you know, people love gay people until their child is gay. You know, they love trans people. They love Pose until they child's trans. And it's just like, what happened to all of that acceptance that you had for your homegirl? And I think about these things. And I guess the point of this section is really just to say, not that you need to copy this thought experiment. I do think it's a useful thought experiment. I think people that are vulnerable, so people from vulnerable populations, trans folks, queer folks, black folks, you know, black and the intersection. I mean, frankly, frankly, if you're in any marginalized group, I, I, you, need, you need a thought experiment to make sure that people are really rocking with you. And I, I don't want to you know, spread paranoia and make people feel like you can't trust people. But honestly, like people be lying. They, they be lying. And they make it seem like they... And it's not that they're... I shouldn't say they be lying. They just haven't thought about it because they don't know your life. They don't know the life that you are living. So when they say they're supporting you, they're supporting you from a place of privilege. They don't actually haven't thoroughly thought through what it means to support you and what it means to occupy the same space that you occupy or an, or an, adjacent, an adjacent space that you occupy. So they think is they, they don't understand that these things come at a cost. Potentially. So oftentimes, I'm not sure, it's oftentimes even a phrase, I don't even know. But so often, you know, a thought experiment is needed. And a serious one at that, you know, one that really calls to question priorities. So I wanted to go into something quick and I think this will be the last thing. Actually, let me just pour a little tequila, tequila. Remind me of a I'm not I'm not even gonna I'm not because what I thought would would have you know would have gotten me in trouble. First of all, my my music mind is crazy. Like I have I have songs for basically every word that anyone says. Like I'm thinking about if I played that word association song shit, I I would murk it, murk it. But the problem is my ratchet mind, the whole mind. You know, the part of me that just thinks whole shit all the time always comes in and corrupts it. You know, I could be, I mean, I can corrupt any song, but I won't do it. 
I'm gonna do it. I'm um, gonna let me drink this one. Okay. But, so, um, I wanted to do a little talk about abolition. I wanted to talk a little bit about the abolition of the prison industrial complex. And whew, my approach will be a bit different. A lot of people in the community, a lot of black women in the community are doing amazing work, are comprehensively summarizing the points, are summarizing the work that people have been doing for the past 30 years in this, in this field. They have been mounting counter-arguments on counter-arguments on counter-arguments, really being robust rhetorically robust about this issue. So I'm not going to do that. That's not my brand. <laughs> not to say like, you know, but it's not really like I, I'm with the shits rhetorically, but I think that I like to offer a psychological analysis or a psychological like walkthroughs of the argument. But I do want to plug some uh, two like famed abolitionists that are both black women, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Mariam Kaba. And my friend actually plugged me to uh, you know put me on this lady or this woman rather, um, Dr. Pertina Love, who I heard speak and it was really really great. A, a video that I saw, and so. Research them, uplift them, quote them, tweet them, IG, Instagram them, post them, whatever. Like, lift them up, lift these queens up, research, Google, all that tea for all of that. If you want an argument about why it's trash, do that. I'm gonna, why, uh, you know, police, while the prison, while it should be, while we should be abolitionists, I do that. What I'm gonna talk about. I'm going to do two things. I'm going to talk about um, what I understand to be the personal, a lot of the personal resistance or the source of personal resistance that is a manifestation of white supremacy, capitalism, elitism, patriarchy, etc. that relates to um, their resistance to prison abolition. And then I may, I don't know if I'll have time, but I may go into my own personal narrative and why I especially don't fuck with it. And I would only do that not to, you know, garner sympathy, but really so that when folks see me in the street, they know not to run this bullshit on me because I'm not the one for it. I don't give a fuck, right? So that would be what, that would be the reason for that. But let's go to the first thing. I mean, what I was thinking about it and meditating on it and trying to figure out the emotionality behind the resistance, I came to, you know, the, the trauma, the promise and the trauma of the protection of one's property. I think that police, that um, the American dream is essentially one that is the promise of wealth acquisition, the promise of amassing property, um, and when you realize that simply amassing property is not all you need to be secure. Real fear, real real multi-layered psychological fear kicks in because you know that there are people that don't, do not have. You know that the, the system is unjustly snuffing out the opportunities of these individuals, of, of these groups, this demog these demographic units. And you know you are profiting from it in some way. 
And this is not just a rich story. I mean, this is anyone at any class. The promise of wealth acquisition even affects kids. The, ability, the conversations about amassing toys and having your toys stolen. And when your child comes to you and says, here I go and fucking kids again. Um, you know, the, well, let me clean that up. That sounded a little bit wild. <laughs> here I go with a kid's example again. But um, how you adjudicate this conflict will be, will operate as the foreshadowing of what the police ought to be or what the, your child thinks a police, a police person should do or a judge or lawyer should do, what is right, that morality around property. I think you have, and I say this because even old, there are old black people that are anti-abolition. It's because when they think of police, they think of people that protect their property, that protect their right to amass wealth, that protect their right to amass property. And a lot of people emotionally need that. They need some kind of facility or faculty that can harness the state's monopoly on violence to protect the, the, the things that they own or protect their ownership as a concept. So psychologically and emotionally or whatever you want to say, getting rid of the police, there starts to be concerns about property, status, wealth. And everyone always goes to the harshest examples, like what do you do with rapists, what do you do with... And there's a retort to that. You know, the, the, the sort of rhetorical debaters of prison reform have, ha they, you know, wrap, the, they wrap this up. But emotionally... There are a couple of things here. There's the propensity to dehumanize, where people have learned to dehumanize quote-unquote criminals. But there's also that, and to me, dehumanizing them is related to, the, uh, to this love affair with amassing property. Because you need to, anyone that threatens it must be an enemy. And in order to justify being cruel to your enemy, you must dehumanize them to minimize cognitive dissonance. So when I talk to people that are pro, that are super pro police or pro prison, that are smart, because you know, are that are educated, well both, smart and educated. I think to myself, what am I actually fighting against in this argument? Am I coming in am I bumping up against someone's sense of right and wrong? Or am I bumping up against someone's addiction to property and the ability to amass it and the investment in the institution that secures that right through violence. And a lot of times I'm bumping up against the ladder. And then I realize that in order to have this conversation, in order to get somewhere, I'm going to have to make an argument or convince or move this person to an emotional place where they realize that their, their right to or their, their privilege of amassing property is, not more, property is not more important than the human rights of the imprisoned.
And although that seems obvious to people who are listening to this podcast or whatever, that that the, the, any problem or argument of that structure is very difficult to win on the fly. <laughs> because we've tried it when it comes to sweatshops. We've tried it in many different forms. And people don't care. I'm, I'm, the average American does not care about these things. You can, I mean, we're literally, in the, in the case of global warming and environmental issues, we're literally talking about the death of the earth. <laughs> People don't care. As long as they can amass wealth. So they don't care about this when it comes to black and brown people either. So I have to take my L you know, when it comes to that and figure out how to get it done anyway. Despite that. And I guess on an emotional note, on a personal note, and then I'll let you guys go. Um, you know, I've had, like I said, I've had my, my, you know, family has been deeply affected. And it's not just that I've had, you know, that my father is locked up. It's not just all of that. It's that it's amazing how many people believe the justice system is just. Every time I bump up against it, I cannot believe that there are people that still think that the criminal justice system is just. There is no justice in the system. That's what, there's none. So when people are talking about injustice in this space, it's stupid to assume that there's green to be just. Like, I've heard people, you know, believe that if your counsel makes a cogent argument, then if, you're, if your defendant is a black man, you'll be freed. And what, why do people think that? The freedom of black people is not tied to rhetoric and cogent arguments. It's just not. It's slavery and human rights violations and how instrumentality, prison labor, convict leasing. This goes back to the amass, the wealth acquisition and the amassing of property. That's the conversation. There's no cogent argument that can win a black person's freedom in this space. I mean, not to say that it's impossible. But the system is not built for that. Anytime a juror, a jury rather, makes this call, makes the right call, the honorable ethical call, it's an exception to the rule. Or it's a deviation from the form, from the structure. The intention of the institution. It's not what they, they, they didn't, these white people didn't intend for that. And it's funny because a lot of people, like, a lot of, and I'm going to leave y'all with this, a lot of people are stumbling across the second, the, the, the last clause of the 13th Amendment now. You know, they're stumbling across it. Now that the exception to the 13, not, I mean, I mean, Ava had her movie and stuff, but they're realizing now that the exception to slavery was if you were a convict and that that was written into the Constitution of America, of the United States of America. And they're like, 
oh shit, oh now I see the T. And it's like, they, well, it's not even that they're saying, oh shit. It's that they are acting like it's a new interpretation of the words. Like that innovation and insight has, you know, because we're in 2020, now we can read better. And now we know the definition of words. So now we know, you know, it was an accidental loophole that they created via poor litigation and poor, you know, science of lawmaking. No, they did it on purpose, like it was intentional. Justice, equality, fairness was never intended by the amendment. Like, what in the actual fuck? Like, how can you not see that? So it's just kind of like, what are we talking about? Once that emotional, you know, you would think that once you realize that, that this was by design, and not a, not an error, that a clerical error, that you would come to the conclusion that we need to get rid of the whole shit and start over and reimagine it. Reimagine not the system, not the institution, but reimagine how to meet the quote-unquote needs that are being met by the current institution. And that's it for me. I um, love y'all. I'm going to, you know, keep living my life. I'm going to keep it cute, keep it positive. Um, the website is up. By the way, I can't believe I almost forgot that. The website is up. BlackSublime.com is out. I have my poetry on there. Um, my email address is awhite at theblacksublime.com. So if you want to talk any shit to me, if you got any questions, if you want to say that I'd be lying, I'm wrong, you want to charge me up, I'll read it. As you typed it, I won't edit it. You know, it's not my thing. Um, so, yes. I forgot about that shit. Yes, 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 yes. Um, please, please, please interact. Um, I'm excited to connect with, most, with more of you. And I'll see you guys.